Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? There is a difference between dialogue and negotiation. And having this dialogue means that Russia doesn't leave the table, which is already a good thing, because if they leave the table, they could also escalate the situation even further. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, politics editor at Political Europe in Brussels. And you just heard the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas, speaking exclusively this week to Politico's Ryan Heath and David Herzenhorn. You'll hear highlights of that conversation about the continuing crisis over Ukraine later in the podcast. And we have another guest too, former European Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström. She talks about the future of big trade deals and also has some sharp words when it comes to how the EU deals with China and Russia. We need to stand up for certain values and we need to speak the same language. And that is the whole problem with the EU foreign policy at this moment. Also vis-a-vis Russia, we don't say the same things. But first, let's get to our podcast panel to discuss two of the biggest stories in European politics this week. So Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. And Annabelle Dixon joins us not just from London, but from the House of Commons, the centre of the action and of UK political action anyway, uh, this week. Hi, Annabelle. Hello. Um, So even though we are EU confidential, I did feel like the big drama, political drama in Europe this week. I mean, in a sense, we have these two very strange stories, or, you know, it's strange to have these two things in parallel where we have the Ukraine crisis uh, going on, you know, a matter of war and peace. And at the same time, we have a huge political storm over parties, gatherings, depending on what you want to call them, in Downing Street, which has become a scandal that you know, endangers the political career of the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. So, um, Annabel, I thought it would be great just to get uh, your insight and also get a bit of a flavour of the debate in the House of Commons uh, on all of this. And we should start perhaps just by summarising where we are. Um, The senior civil servant, Sue Gray, delivered what was really an update rather than her actual report into all of these gatherings. And the reason it was just an update and didn't contain much detail is because the Metropolitan Police are now looking into 12 of the 16 gatherings that she was looking into. Uh, It seems like quite a lot of material has gone to the police, including uh, photographs as well as a, a hefty report. Uh, But what she did say, you know, in some ways, I think was already pretty damning. She talked about failures of leadership and judgment. She talked about heavy drinking, a drinking culture in really the prime minister's office in Downing Street. 
And um, she made very clear that uh, she did not think some of these events should have happened, given the COVID restrictions that the country was under at the time. And she also said that some of the things shouldn't have developed as they should have. So when do they ever? (laughs) Yeah, good point. but that brings us to the the drama of the of the House of Commons, Annabelle. So then, you know, Boris Johnson has to come out and give his reaction and face MPs over over all of this. It's not my fault if the Prime Minister can't be trusted to tell the truth. You were in uh, the House of Commons that day. Uh, give us a sense of the atmosphere and also what what stood out to you from that debate, which was very dramatic. Yes, that's right. It was one of these kind of big dramatic days. We talk about them all the time, but this this really was one of them. So Boris Johnson had to face his MPs. It was about an hour after this report dropped. So you had the opposition. Keir Starmer gave a very good performance, I thought. You know, there was some incredible kind of accusations that the prime minister had no shame. Um, He renewed his calls for him to resign. They think the Prime Minister should do the decent thing and resign. Of course he won't, because he is a man without shame. And And this was really a key key moment, wasn't it, for Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, leader of the opposition, someone whose uh, suitability for that job has been questioned quite a bit. And it felt like this was a moment where certainly, as I looked at the reaction, as you say, even people I would describe as more neutral felt that he rose to the occasion, right? He put in a strong performance, just looking at it in kind of parliamentary terms. Exactly. And that's important for Boris Johnson's future, because if his MPs think that Keir Starmer's a credible leader of the opposition, they're more likely to act against the prime minister. But what was most striking and what was most damning for the prime minister was what was happening behind him on his own benches. So we had Theresa May, our old friend, who stood up very early on and made this incredibly pointed intervention about whether the Prime Minister knew the rules himself, the rules that he set. So either my right honourable friend had not read the rules, or didn't understand what they meant and others around him, or they didn't think the rules applied to number 10. Which was it? You know, revenge is a kind of dish best served with an icy stare and a barbed comment. And then probably the strongest intervention came from the backbench Conservative MP, Aaron Bell, who stood up and recounted how he'd gone to his grandmother's funeral. Only 10 people at the funeral, many people who loved her had to watch online. I didn't hug my siblings, I didn't hug my parents. And he finished with this incredibly powerful question to the Prime Minister. Does the Prime Minister think I'm a fool? So that really was a big moment of high drama. Yeah, and we should say that uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, you know, he did apologise. But firstly, I want to say sorry. And I'm sorry for the things we simply... He did say, I get it and I will fix it. But I would say for for me, just kind of watching from outside, not as someone who uh, inhabits the Westminster bubble, I was even then struck by some of his phrasing, which seemed to be passive. He talked about how this had been handled. So sorry for the way that this matter has been handled. How we had done things. There wasn't a lot about him personally being in charge uh, and taking personal responsibility for things that happened in his office. So that brings us, I guess, to the key question, as you said, Annabel, 
really a lot of this, you know, we may all have our opinions on this, but all of this in terms of Boris Johnson's future comes down to a few hundred Conservative MPs who are going to decide whether they want him to remain their leader and therefore Prime Minister or whether there will be a move against him. You talked to a lot of MPs that day, I think, and have been talking to them over the past few days. What's your sense of of where they stand at the moment on this? Well, a lot of MPs are in absolute agony. It feels like every time you talk to an MP, it's actually a bit of a therapy session. It took me about an hour to leave work the other night because I just kept bumping into MPs who wanted to have a really long chat about the dilemmas they were going through. And a lot of them are deeply uncomfortable. They can't defend. They won't defend what the Prime Minister's done. They're furious. They've got their own stories. They've got the stories from their constituents. But they're not yet moving against the Prime Minister. And there's a sort of mixture of reasons why. But I think a lot of MPs don't think he'll be there fighting the next election. But they're worried about the timing. So they're worried that if they move too soon, the Prime Minister could say, give me more time, the police investigation isn't complete yet. And then the other big concern is about what comes next. Um, There's not a sort of obvious successor. And that throws up all sorts of uncertainties. You'll have a sort of very bitter leadership contest. So there's a lot of things going through their minds. Right. And then, of course, we also have the police investigation hanging over this. Um, We don't know how long that's going to last. It sounds like it could be a while. So in a sense, there is this kind of sword of Damocles, you know, hanging over the prime minister in any case. Right. Which could finish him off, I think, if if they came back with a damning verdict. Exactly. It's a sort of stay of execution for now. And actually, some people say, oh, the police investigation is great because it gives him more time. But actually, I was speaking to one MP who said, I think it's only going to get worse from here. Matt, what do you make of it all from, you know, from a bit of distance? uh, Unlike Annabelle and I, you're not steeped in, you know, British political history. What do you make of it? You know, as sympathetic as I am to people whose grandmothers died and who weren't able to attend their funerals and so forth, I think it's worth remembering who the Brits put into power here. And, you know, this should come as a surprise to nobody. I mean, they knew exactly who he was when they made him prime minister, just like Americans knew who Donald Trump was. So everything that happens after, I mean, you can't sort of feign shock, you know, and horror now, uh, given everything that we knew about him going in. It's a bit like Casablanca, right? The shock at the gambling in the casino. It's a little bit like that. And I also think, look, it's going to it's inevitable, I think, that these pictures are going to come out and and that will, uh, you know, give this kind of carnival-like atmosphere another boost. It's worth remembering that Sue Gray, by the way, is a very uh, tough nut. She fired our colleague and former host of this podcast, Ryan Heath, at one point, and I recommend that people read his first-person account of those events. So I I think this is going to continue to dog him. It's just going to be, you know, death by a thousand cuts. Uh, yeah, well, obviously, the, the moral of the story is don't mess with the greys. And I go. would also say that it's pretty galling when someone who at one point ran a pub has to tell, you know, civil servants that excessive drinking in the workplace is inappropriate when she has to be the person to tell them that. What Are, are the Germans giving it much coverage? Is it getting much coverage in Berlin? Is there much uh, interest in it there? Uh, it is getting some coverage, not the wall-to-wall coverage that you're getting elsewhere, but there is this kind of schadenfreude here, for lack of a better word, I think, because the Germans have been very skeptical of 
Boris Johnson from the beginning because they never considered him to be a serious politician. And you just need to look at the current and former German chancellor to know the type of people Germans uh, select to <laughs> become their political uh, leaders. Yeah, sobriety would be the would be the watchword. Well, let's move. As I say, it's very strange to have these two very different dramas going on in Europe at the same time. The other one, and Boris Johnson went straight from one to the other. Uh, the other one being the crisis in Ukraine. Annabel, what did you make of what uh, Boris Johnson had to say and in Ukraine when he met the president? It goes without saying that a further Russian invasion of Ukraine would be a political disaster, a humanitarian disaster. In my view, it would also be, for Russia, for the world, a military disaster as well. Yeah, well, who would have thought um, the potential for war would be a welcome break from Westminster? But it, it still dominates, you know, even even at the press conference yesterday, he was asked about it. I mean, in terms of the actual visit, I don't think it particularly moved us on substantially. It was symbolic and a lot of what the UK has been doing, it's really sort of wrapped its arms around the Ukraine the big sort of headline announcement was more cash, £88 million in aid to help the Ukrainians sort of shore up their energy supplies. I think it was probably quite good timing for him to be there, particularly at the time that Vladimir Putin sort of gave his response to what's going on at the moment. Um, but as I say, I, I don't think it sort of moved us on substantially in, in the crisis. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that that certainly the UK is, I think, portraying itself as kind of more robust and muscular, if you like, in its response than at least some members uh, of the European Union. You know, the UK was kind of quick to offer and deliver defensive uh, weapons to Ukraine as this current crisis uh, blew up. Uh, Boris Johnson personally being in Kiev is something that uh, Emmanuel Macron or Olaf Scholz have not done since this crisis blew up. And they've also, I think, as we discussed last week, been quite forward leaning in terms of uh, presenting what they say is intelligence about Russia's intentions in Ukraine. And as I say, that does contrast uh, quite sharply, Matt, in particular with the German response here. And Olaf Scholz is heading to Washington to discuss the Ukraine crisis with Joe Biden and and other subjects as well, I'm sure, but that's obviously going to be the focus. It feels like Olaf Scholz has got quite a bit of explaining to do. Would you agree? Absolutely. There's huge frustration in Washington behind the scenes, not publicly, but behind the scenes. There's a lot of frustration with Germany's kind of refusal, really, to do something, you know, more symbolic even uh, in terms of showing solidarity with Ukraine here, whether it be sending rifles or howitzers or even rhetorically speaking, uh, coming out a little bit more strongly and backing up Ukraine. And I think to kind of connect to what Annabelle was just saying, the contrast to the UK is very dramatic. And the UK has shown itself here again, I think from an American perspective, to be really the indispensable ally of the United States here. And I think this is something that is really driving a wedge through the NATO alliance. And Germany obviously has this history of kind of wanting to play both sides of the fence when it comes to Russia and not being too aggressive towards Russia for fear, really, I think, of 
damaging their their business interests uh, with with Russia. There's obviously the gas question, and Nord Stream Two is getting a lot of attention now. But Germany really has much deeper commercial interests with Russia as well. And I, I think that they are very, or I know that they are, are, are very concerned about the long-term effects uh, this conflict could have on that, especially if there is an invasion and if they are forced to go along with Western sanctions against Russia. Additional, sorry, I should say additional Western sanctions against Russia. Right. And obviously Germany also points to its history, its recent history for its uh, reticence in terms of providing arms and being, if you like, too robust. Well, just on that point quickly, I mean, this is the kind of rhetorical box I think the Germans get themselves into because they also have a history with Eastern European countries and they also have a pretty dark history with Ukraine and more people in Ukraine died per capita in Russia. So they can't always sort of cite the war as a reason for you know, not wanting to manhandle Russia. Annabelle, go ahead. Yeah, I just had a question for Matt about some public opinion on it. What does the German populace think? Right. Well, the German population is really behind the government on this. There's not a strong willingness to send arms into uh, Ukraine. Okay, let's uh, leave it there for now. Uh, But uh, Matt and Annabelle will be back uh, later in the podcast with some recommendations with a sporting theme. But for now, Matt, Annabelle, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Now, last week you heard from our reporter Charlie Duxbury in the Baltic country of Latvia on how ordinary people there are reacting to the tensions with Russia over Ukraine. This week, we have a different perspective from the top of government in another Baltic country, Estonia. Earlier this week, our colleagues Ryan Heath and David Herzenhorn got on a call with Prime Minister Kaya Kallas, and she noted that the Baltic countries had been accused in the past of being alarmist about Russia. This is true that for for a long time we were considered to be somehow, uh, you know, Russophobes. Uh, But since 2014, I think we are being taken seriously because 2014 Crimea happened and, uh, you know, we warned something like this is happening. And I think when I look at the positive side, then I think the positive side is that we are being listened to. Kalas also shared her perspective on what she believes is Vladimir Putin's real intention in the region. I think their goal is to expand physically because, uh, you know, Putin has been very open about his ideas and goals, saying that, you know, the collapse of Soviet Union is the biggest geopolitical catastrophe of this century. And this is how he thinks. In light of that view, Ryan and David asked Callas what the West's goal should be in the current situation. First of all, we don't see any military threat at our borders right now. But if you look at the map, then Ukraine is in the middle of uh, Europe. So it definitely has effect on all of Europe. Of course, our position is different because uh, the Baltic states are members of NATO, whereas Ukraine is not. And what is the difference? The difference is that we have Article 5 in, in NATO, which says that attack on one is attack on all, which means that we have, you know, different troops also present here. But uh, if, uh, you know, we would be attacked, then it would mean that, you know, Russia is attacking US directly. It would actually make this link. And, and I think that this is totally different, different risk. 
But what they are doing is pushing this, you know, a bit further every time. I mean, 2014, Crimea happened, then Donbass happened, and nobody was talking about give Crimea back, and, and the talk was more about let them not go any further. And this is something that we definitely have to prevent right now. I have um, used this quote several times that they use this old Soviet type of negotiation tactics, which is first demand the maximum, demand something that has never belonged to you, then second, present ultimatums, and third, do not give one inch uh, in the negotiations because there will always be people in the West or who will negotiate and give you something that you didn't uh, have before. So, so this is definitely something that we should keep in mind and why this is so important that uh, the situation is not escalating and why it's so important that NATO, uh, the allies are not giving anything, even small things to Russia. For example, what they have asked that NATO goes back to the 97 borders. Uh, well, this is outrageous. It means that half of the members in NATO shouldn't be in NATO. And first of all, Russia has no say who uh, can and who cannot be member of NATO. And the second thing that we are very cautious of is, you know, demands regarding military exercises, for example, because uh, the goal of Russia is to get the agreements, whereas they have no intention of keeping the agreement, if you look at the agreements that they have made. Maybe I can jump in there because you're showing, you know, even now a realistic assessment that I don't hear from many people in Brussels. And that is that up until this point, what Putin is asking for is something for nothing. He's made all of these demands. If he gets any of them, it would be something for nothing. And yet you're also raising a question that I've been asking, which is I don't see how there is a negotiated solution between two parties that no longer trust even the agreements they have previously signed. And so maybe I, you could talk a little bit about how your colleagues around, especially from bigger member states around the European Council table, have been handling these talks. Because I was very impressed last spring. The Yuko, there was a push by Germany and France for this summit with Putin, and small states, the Baltics and Poland, said no way. And there were very, very realistic Russia conclusions. But now we see Macron on the phone twice already with Putin, uh, officials tripping over each other to get to Moscow, one and the other and the other, allowing him to be at the center of the world stage. And I wonder, as you say, there's an instinct on the Western side to negotiate, but to negotiate to what end? I mean, shouldn't at some point they pick up the phone and say, uh, hello, Vladimir Vladimirovich, have you withdrawn from Crimea yet? No? Okay, bye. And hang up. Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's a difference between dialogue and negotiation. And, you know, uh, having this dialogue means that Russia doesn't leave the table which is already a good thing, because if they leave the table, they could also escalate the situation even further. So I don't mind having a dialogue. What I was really against uh, in the spring was having a high-level summit, because as we agreed as European Union, that unless 
Russia gives back Crimea, we will not uh, hold, uh, you know, high level summits with Russia. And then suddenly the talk about, you know, the uh, high level summit comes up. So, so the question immediately is, has Crimea been given back? Has there something been changed? So if not, then we are just weak if we step uh, towards them. But it is true that um, different uh, leaders uh, of, of our big allies are having these dialogues. And I can clearly see what Putin does. Putin wants to play us against each other. Uh, for, for Kremlin, it is their interest that we are divided, whereas it shouldn't be our interest. Our uh, strength is in unity. And I must say that holding this unity in the messaging is our strength and we have kept this. That was Kaya Kalas, the Prime Minister of Estonia. And if you want to hear the full interview, be sure to check out Ryan's podcast, Global Insider, which will be out next week. Now we'll take a short break and then talk global trade and the EU's geopolitical ambitions with former Trade Commissioner Cecilia Malmström. And we'll also have some reading recommendations for you. Stay with us. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. A message from EPRA. In an era where the green transition and retirement security are top priorities for the next EU Commission, listed real estate is a dual force in addressing these global megatrends. As the world strives to meet the Paris Agreement's objectives, the sector provides transformation to Europe's building stock, significantly reducing our carbon footprint and advancing sustainable development goals. Amid financial uncertainties, particularly around retirement income, listed real estate offers a resilient investment choice, promising stability, growth and positive social impacts. It provides crucial infrastructure Europe needs, from healthcare facilities to sustainable housing, ensuring a greener, more secure future for millions. EPRA and its members are dedicated to leveraging this potential, working alongside EU institutions to foster investments that build and benefit society and Europe. Now let's turn to our next guest. Cecilia Malmström is a name well known to EU watchers. The Swedish Liberal politician was once a member of the European Parliament and then went on to become a member of the European Commission, serving until 2019 as the Commissioner for Trade. But while Malmström has since left the Commission, she hasn't left the Brussels bubble. She's taken on a new role as a senior advisor at the law firm Covington & Burling. Here's her description of what she will and won't be doing in that job. I don't lobby the Commission, obviously. It's not a lobby organisation. It's more an advisory and uh, arbitration. But I can more contribute to explain the context and and advice on on how to penetrate very complicated law materia. Malmström spoke with our senior trade correspondent, Barbara Moons, earlier this week. 
In recent years, the EU has been struggling to close and ratify a trade deals. Do you feel that the EU's area of, of doing global trade deals is over or do we just have to wait until the French elections and then we can pick things up again? <laughs> well, I, I certainly don't think it's over. That would be a huge pity because the EU, I mean, right now we are struggling with a lot of international challenges. But one area where the EU is and has been really strong is in the trade area. We have more trade agreements than anybody else. And trade is not only a way to you know, create jobs, investment and growth. It's also a way to you know, cooperate in a vast area of fields. And it creates connections between people as well. And that has been a real strength for the European Union to make those allies apart from the pure economic advantages as well. So it would be a real pity if we stopped that because it gives us access to markets. Obviously, it gives us possibility to set standards and to work with allies on a variety of fields in trade, obviously, for instance, when we try to reform the WTO, but also it has side effects when you start cooperating in environmental issues or science or transport and things like that. So that's why I th this is really creating an important place for the European Union on the global arena. So I hope while we are navel-gazing and seeing how we can be a more powerful geopolitical player, that is important as well. But let's not forget that the biggest geopolitical asset that we have is the trade policy. So how can we change that dynamic again? What needs to be done at this point? Well, right now, I think there's a lot of domestic policy in, in some countries who are sort of blocking this. Uh, but we need to discuss this in, in, in a broader area. We need to discuss it in a geopolitical sense as well. I mean, the trade agreement that we have with Japan, with, uh, with Singapore, with Canada, for instance, also with Vietnam, it gives us new friends and allies. We might not agree on everything with them, absolutely not, but it gives us arenas to cooperate and to talk together on broader fields. And that should not be forgotten as we are looking for a more strategic autonomy, because you cannot be autonomous on your own. You need also to cooperate and to build alliances. And giving up that strong alliance is a big mistake. For instance, we have already done agreements with Chile and Mexico, but they're not being ratified. That is a pity, and it's affecting our credibility. Mm -hmm. Trade has, has recently become very geopolitical, as you mentioned. Just in, in recent weeks, the EU has sued China at the WTO over its blockage of Lithuania and other EU goods. What do you make of that move also in the context of broader EU-China relations? Well, I think that was the right move to make, to take this conflict to the WTO. It might not be solved on a short-term basis, but the EU must show that we still believe in the WTO, that when there are conflicts arising like this, WTO is one forum to address it. So that was the correct thing to do. And it also shows Lithuania that you know the EU is one because it's been a bit poor, the solidarity vis-a-vis -vis Lithuania from the EU side, I, I think. But of course, you need also to have other tools. You need to address it with China. You need to speak with one voice, which we don't have at this time. And we need to work and to get through the anti-coercion instrument that was proposed from the Commission a couple of weeks ago, a month ago as well, which could have been very useful in, in a case like this. So when there are conflicts, we should take them to WTO, but we should also try to address them in other means, because this is, of course, totally unacceptable, what China is doing. And if you say that the solidarity with Lithuania has been poor, what else could have EU countries or the EU institutions have done more than they are doing now by taking this to the World Trade Organization? Well, that, that's an important step. But I mean, vocally or rhetorically, we could have been 
much more vocal in standing up for Lithuania. If the same message comes from Brussels and all the capitals saying that this is not just uh, something you're doing against a small country in EU, it's the whole internal market. It, this is the EU and we do not accept it. So just you know, standing up, making that political statement is a very strong action of solidarity vis-a-vis Lithuanians. And I think they missed that, but also showing China that we don't accept this. Because I think I wrote it down because it was so too, but the Chinese foreign minister said a month ago regarding the EU policy vis-a-vis China that uh, we have noticed that Europe's policy towards China seems to suffer from cognitive dissonance. And that's quite, I mean, that, that shows what it's about. We give mixed messages to China. And if we want to influence China, if we want to put pressure on them, if we want to cooperate, because we need to cooperate as well, but we need to stand up for certain values and we need to speak the same language. And that is the whole problem with the EU foreign policy at this moment, also vis-a-vis Russia. We don't say the same things. Mm-hmm. Because you do have the tendency, obviously, to have more foreign policy, inter-trade policy. If you look at that just five or ten years ago, is that trend continuing or has that always been the case? Are we just focusing more on it now? Well, there has always been this element. But right now, of course, when we are talking about sanctions vis-a-vis Russia, for instance, and many of them are trade-related. And this is building up a big momentum. Uh, we also saw that during the Trump era, sanctions and, and trade elements were very much part of his foreign policy agenda. And we see now that we are discussing the proposed legislation that will come in a couple of weeks, I think, on forced labor and trade as well. That can also be interpreted as a foreign policy tool. So it's getting more. And that's why it's so important that you get your trade policy right and that you try to get your foreign policy in line with that and more, you know, a more united line from capitals in Europe. Okay. All right. Thank you. One final question on a very light note. We ask all our guests to um, have a recommendation for any book or podcast or movie that you've recently enjoyed in this long COVID winter. Just one out of the top of your head that you would like to recommend. Ooh. <laughs> well, I've seen a lot of pods and Netflix series and so on. But actually, I embarked uh, just before Christmas on a long reading project, the Jacob books by the former Nobel Prize laureate Olga Tokarczuk from Poland. And she has written a book about the 1800s in Poland and what was then Poland and the neighborhood. And it's a fantastic book. And it's so, I mean, you learn so much. And, and it's an amazing book. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It was nice being with you. Okay, so following on from Cecilia Malmstrom's uh, recommendation, let's get some recommendations from our podcast panel. And we thought we'd have a sporting theme uh, this week as the Winter Olympics are starting. So, Annabelle, why don't we start with you? Well, I'm going to shamelessly plug my husband's children's book. Um, He is a sports journalist who covers Norwich City Football Club, which is, is in the Premier League for now. So he's written a book called One Shot at Glory, and it's aimed at, I'd say, sort of 10, 11, 12-year-olds. And it's that classic story of the sort of boyhood dream of becoming a professional footballer and all the sort of travails of coming back from injury. So I'm going to be very kind and plug that for him. 
Okay, well, I think you've declared an interest. People can, um, you know, decide for themselves whether it's a it's an award winner, uh, but it sounds uh, worth investigating. I think Matt and I, being more cynical uh, types, have uh, both gone for, you know, when asked to choose things with a sporting theme, have both gone for things with a sporting corruption theme. Matt, what's yours? Yeah, so I, I read this book uh, several years ago now. It was uh, very eye-opening in terms of explaining the history of the modern Olympics. It's called The Games, A Global History of the Olympics by David Goldblatt. And he really kind of tracks the history of the Olympics from 1896 to uh, the, the modern era and explains how we, we ended up where we are and, and really gave me a lot to think about in terms of you know, whether the Olympics are, are worth all of the expense and, and effort uh, or not. And it really shows just how political they are and how they've become kind of, you know, kind of an authoritarian's fantasy because they've managed to kind of use them to, you know, whitewash bad things they're doing. And if you look at what's going on in China, you know, we're, we're seeing that uh, play out again. Yeah, we'll see, I guess, because, I mean, there's a whole debate in itself, because sometimes, of course, it does shine the spotlight on those things uh, when they wouldn't otherwise get nearly as much attention. So we'll see how it plays out with China. But I'm going to pick another one uh, on the Olympic movement. Uh, It's called The New Lords of the Rings, Olympic Corruption and How to Buy Gold Medals. It's by a very distinguished investigative journalist, Andrew Jennings, who died recently. So it gives us uh, the chance to pay a little tribute to him. In a previous life, I covered the International Olympic Committee, among other things, in Geneva for a while. And that theme of Olympic corruption is uh, at the centre of of this book. And uh, he was a very outspoken figure who I remember from from various press conferences in in Lausanne. Will you ask the Ethics Committee to find out and to name who let this germ of corruption into a much cleaned up, much improved... So that's mine, Andrew Jennings, the new Lords of the Rings. And we'll leave it there. Annabelle, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please take a moment to click follow or subscribe wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. Remember that you can always send us ideas for guests or topics and feedback on this episode or any other. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks this week to Ryan Heath, Noah Zahn and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.